0: Compass Media Networks, this is America's First
1: News, this weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Farewell to loyalty. I'm Gordon Deal. thanks for spending part of your weekend with us, here's what's coming up this hour. Employers and employees are not as loyal to each other as they used to be, but when did things fall apart? We'll explore the issue. Also, not ready for an all-electric vehicle? A tech expert has a list of the best plug-in hybrids. Plus, with the Super Bowl in mind, what your feelings about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey say about your own relationships, and the new dating trend for young adults, situationships.
2: At first, it sounds like it's an unfortunate byproduct of modern dating culture and swiping, but when you think about it, it really has been around for a long time. Anyone who's read a Jane Austen novel knows that uh, uh, situationships are as old as romance itself.
1: Jennifer Kingson at Axios, on situationships being on the rise. Well, whether stories are about quiet quitting or job hopping or leveraging a job offer from a competitor to force your boss to give you a raise, workers seem to divide into two groups. On one side are bosses and tenured employees, and on the other side are rank-and-file employees who feel equally aggrieved. More about loyalty from Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. Aki, what did you look at?
3: Well, you know, it's just a concept that I've heard a lot of people talk about over the last few years. Um, I've written so many stories where basically like a lot of, um, I guess, like older workers, you know, or maybe kind of boss types would be like, you know, kids these days, like where's their loyalty? And then, you know, uh, the employees would be like, well, like you're not loyal to me. So why would I be loyal to you? Um, And I felt like there was this real tension, you know, about like kind of the appropriate way for workers to, I guess, like approach their jobs and think about their employers. Um, So, yeah, that's what I decided to do a deep dive on.
1: All right. So some of this is tied to what you called in the story, a psychological contract, meaning what?
3: Yeah, so this is a term that, um, you know, uh, one management professor, um, she's an organizational psychologist, came up with uh, actually several decades ago. And it's basically about kind of, you know, what employers and employees think they owe each other and what they're owed in return. So if you think of like, Uh, an employment contract, you know, that's an explicit contract, right? You have the terms of, you know, like, you know, when you're supposed to work and how much money you're going to get and all of that. Um, But there's so much so many other things that go into an employer employee relationship that isn't really explicitly spelled out. So all that implicit stuff, that's what we uh, that's what management professors call the psychological contract.
1: Mm. What's the uh, common denominator, if anything, when it comes to loyalty?
3: Well, I think, you know, the important thing is that it has to go both ways. Um, And, you know, as I wrote in my story, there was a time in, you know, corporate America when Uh, employers were loyal to their employees and employees were loyal to their employers back. Um, I think today we still have this kind of like general norm that employees should be loyal to their employers, but employers aren't loyal to their employees anymore. Um, I mean, You think about like layoffs, layoffs happen all the time now. Um, You can work really, really hard and still lose your job. Um, A lot of um, employee benefits have gone by the wayside. Um, Benefits used to be much more generous before uh and so there's just kind of this like general i think like frustration that we as employers are still expected to be loyal to our employers um but employers aren't loyal to us
1: yeah we're speaking with Aki ito senior correspondent at business insider her story is called the end of workplace loyalty um I don't know. What about the the end of pensions as as they started to fade, or globalization? Those those things have roles here in, in the fading away of loyalty.
3: Yeah, definitely. So you know, the disappearance of pensions, um, you know, kind of pensions becoming four uh, hundred one ks. That was part of this movement um, starting in the eighties. Uh, where there was like the birth of a, a new management philosophy that was much less kind of, you know, paternalistic, I guess, towards employees. It was less like, we'll take care of you and more like, <laughs> you know, you're on your own. Yeah. Um, so, you know, companies just started to uh, focus a lot more on, you know, kind of getting returns for shareholders. And as a result, they ended up, um, you know, cutting back on a lot of different, um, you know, uh, benefits and also job security for employees, and that includes pensions.
1: What about globalization?
3: Uh, so globalization was really like the thing that kind of spurred all of this in the 80s in the first place. Um, it's it's kind of like hard to remember. But, you know, back then, um, Japan was like a really huge force. And uh, a lot of, you know, American companies were worried that Japanese companies would take them over. Um, so it kind of lit like a fire under these American uh, executives. And they were like, we have to become a lot more cutthroat in order to, you know, be um, be able to adequately compete with Japanese companies. Um, Japan isn't so much a threat anymore for U.S. companies. You know, now it's probably more countries like China. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, this, like, globalized economy forced American companies to compete with, you know, uh, businesses in other countries for the first time. Um, And, you know, uh, that's one of the, the reasons why this new management philosophy became so dominant.
1: Thanks, Aki. Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. Coming up next, the mission and value of Super Bowl ads. Hey, it's Gordon Deal here to tell you about this game-changing product I use before having a couple of cocktails called Z-Biotics. I can easily feel lousy from just one drink, but I've now found something that helps avoid that miserable feeling the next morning. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. It's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by Ph.D. scientists trying to eliminate that crummy feeling the following day. Here's how it works. When you drink, Alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night. Whether you're sitting down at home for movie night or maybe out with friends, drink responsibly and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/gordon to get 15% off your first order when you use Gordon at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/gordon and use the code Gordon at checkout for 15% off. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Companies are shelling out seven million dollars for 30-second commercials during the Super Bowl. Which ones stand out so far and which brand has the most to gain or lose? In-depth analysis from Marbu Brown, customer experience executive and author of a book called Blueprint for Customer Obsession. Marbu, how do companies approach Super Bowl ads?
4: Well, look, I think that a lot of companies uh, think of the Super Bowl ads as an opportunity to build a brand, an opportunity to establish their brand in a new area, or um, just to really introduce something new for the, for the brand period, right? Yeah. So, and we're going to see all of that in, in uh, this year's uh, Super Bowl ads uh, based on what I've seen of them so far.
1: What stands out based on what you've seen?
4: Well, what stands out is that uh, this year it's mostly going to be established brands, there's going to be a lot of celebrities that are going to be used in the um, commercials and people are going back to their uh their tried and true formulas right so you know a couple of years ago um we had a lot of uh cryptocurrency ads uh during the Super Bowl yes um those are gone uh a number of the companies that were advertised are gone um and uh you know some in a, a very ignominious way right i'm um, so um <laughs> You know, we're, we're going to see more established brands and, um, you know, some of them are trying to make a comeback, uh, like Budweiser, yeah. who have had some challenges. Um, so uh, so that's what we're going to see this year and um, a lot of celebrity endorsements. Hmm.
1: We're speaking with Marbu Brown, customer experience executive, also author of a book called the Blueprint for Customer Obsession. And we're talking about the Super Bowl ads. Generally speaking, what does it take to make a successful Super Bowl ad.
4: Well, I think that uh first of all it, it takes a little bit of humor. Um it, it takes the ability to create a an emotional connection uh with the viewers. Um, you know, those celebrity endorsements don't help hurt because they they have like a known person. Um and look, you gotta have a great message. Um, you gotta have a great message and I, I, I gotta tell you that these days when you think about Super Bowl ads, it's no longer one and done. So it's not just that you have the ad during the game, but you kind of had have, have the lead up to the ad before the game. And then you have staying power of sometimes reusing those commercials many times after the game. Mm. Um, I think of uh It was actually a pharmaceutical commercial last year for something called sopic which I believe was actually first advertised during the Super Bowl, but they've used that ad many times over post the Super Bowl. So they continued delivering that message long after using those ads over and over. Or like the Dexcom G7, which is a continuous blood glucose monitor. That was something that was introduced during the, um, the uh, Super Bowl with one of the Jonas Brothers, and then they've continued to use that ad, you know, over the course of the year. So I think um, part of the success of a Super Bowl ad is the lead-up to it, the follow-up after it, and those other pieces that I mentioned, like the humor, um, you know, the emotional connection, and, uh, you know, where they can afford it the celebrity
1: endorsement. Right. Well, You bring up a good point. I mean, it's like $7 million for 30 seconds or something like that. Then if you're a brand who's using a celebrity, right, you got that expense also, plus professional production, all that stuff. I mean, it's a big endeavor.
4: It, it is a big endeavor. That, that number might run, you know, into the tens of millions, maybe, you know, past 20 million, um, just to get all of that. And if you look at many of these commercials, they're not just using one um, celebrity. They're 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 using yeah. multiple yeah. Uh, um, celebrities, you know. So you've got like, uh, you know, Vince Vaughn and and uh, Wayne Gretzky and you know Tom Brady all in the same commercial. You know, you, you've got, like, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, people, Dan Marino and, and Leanna Messi, uh, Leo Messi, in, in the same commercial. And, and all of these commercials are, are, are having multiple, David Beck, David and Victoria Beckham, Jeez. and Jennifer Anister, Aniston, right, and, and Schwimmer. So you've got all these people in, in the same commercials. It's
1: expensive. Thanks, Marbu. Marbu Brown. Again, the book is called Blueprint for Customer Obsession. Glad you could be with us. Seven years since the term situationships was coined in Cosmopolitan, the concept has not only gone mainstream, but turned into a desired outcome among some dating app users and spawned new merch. We get more from this weekend's Nicole Murray. It's Nicole
5: Murray here with Jennifer Kingston talking about situationships. An Axios journalist that has looked all into this. Let me start with the basics. How would you define a situationship?
2: Haven't we all been in one? It's (laughs) when you're sort of dating, but it's ambiguous. And uh, you're not quite sure where things stand. It's a form of dating limbo that at first sounds like it's an unfortunate byproduct of modern dating culture and swiping. But when you think about it, it really has been around for a long time. Anyone who's read a Jane Austen novel knows that uh, uh, situationships are as old as romance itself, right?
5: Isn't that the truth? Now, I know there's a lot of newer dating terms out there, booty call, friends with benefits. How would you say a situationship is different?
2: Well, uh, you know, I spoke and read up on relationship experts. And by the way, that's a job description I want. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A situationship seems to be uh, probably a one-sided thing where you've gotten physical, but uh, you're not really a couple. And uh, as is often the case, one person wants more. Interestingly, there are a lot of women's magazines articles about this where people will say, well, it could be a good thing because maybe you want to have fun and play the field. And I'm sure for a lot of people it is that way. But uh, we all know that one side uh, has a tendency to get hurt. Situation Ships is a cool name, though, and, uh, you know, it's tailor-made for the, for the social media era. It's become a hashtag. It was runner-up for Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year but lost out to Riz. Um, so it's, it's a catchy term, and uh, instinctively we all kind of know uh, where it is. So marketers have been making hay with this. Uh, kind of the hook for my story on this was that Sweetheart Candies, that make those kind of chalky tasting conversation hearts. Yeah, came out with a situation ships box that sold out no. instantly for Valentine's Day. There are like romance no- novels that use the term situation ships. There are fragrant candle makers that that uh, have cheeky candles that, uh, with a a fragrance when as elusive as the fleeting moments of a situation shift. So it's kind of a, a cool, hip term that's, that's uh, coming around and, and emerging the, as in the lead-up to Valentine's Day.
5: Wow. Um, who would you say this setup is most popular with?
2: Well, this probably uh, uh, sounds bad, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing, just based on historical gender roles, that uh, among heterosexual couples, it's probably a better deal for the guy. Uh, But that's just, uh, you know, what what I'm picking up from from people who are talking about it online is that uh, sometimes the the woman may want more. But I'm sure that in, in, uh, you know, there are all kinds of situations and situationships. And that may be the opposite. Uh, I've been out of the dating scene for a while now, so uh, I'm not sure where things stand on that front.
5: All right. Um, So I know you've you've described this as like a one-sided thing. What are some of the signs that someone is in a situationship?
2: Uh, Well... The original, uh, the the term situationship, as I understand it, was coined in 2017 in an article in Cosmo Magazine entitled "Is the Situationship Ruining Modern Romance?" Where the writer describes how she met this guy, and she was spending uh, like four nights a week at his apartment, and she had a toothbrush there, and they went shopping for household items together. But he would never introduce her as his girlfriend and it got her frustrated and they eventually drifted apart so that that seems to me to be a kind of defi- definition of a of a situationship um, and uh, who can say whether it's becoming more common or not, perhaps because of the availability of, of dating apps it is. Um, but, you know, we keep reading about how there are, there are other modern conditions, how polyamory, where, where every people have multiple partners with the consent of all involved, are becoming popular. There's a, a book just that just came out by a woman who, who had a husband and a boyfriend, and they all lived they all were okay with it i guess until they weren't yeah. uh, human nature seems to uh, want us to pair off then there are what they call parasocial relationships where which are which are actually one-sided in which you're in love with a public figure like taylor swift or harry styles and of course it's it's not requited it. right so, right uh, there are lots of different terms for for different types of of uh, relationships and uh, uh, we all hope for the best to find the kind of romance that works for us.
1: That's this weekend's Nicole Murray with Axios reporter Jennifer Kingson. Coming up next, what we know about you based on your Swelly opinions. If you still have landline phone service, you may have noticed that your monthly bills have been skyrocketing. That's because the FCC no longer regulates copper lines and phone companies are jacking up the price of their service. Uma is an internet home phone service that lets you keep enjoying the safety and peace of mind of a home phone without paying an arm and a leg. In fact, with a one-time purchase of the Uma Tello, you get internet home phone service for free. All you pay are applicable taxes and fees. Unlike mobile phones, UMA has address-based 911, so dispatchers will know exactly where to find you in an emergency. In the event you call 911, UMA can send a text alert to loved ones. UMA even includes a free mobile app so you can take your home number on the go. And don't worry, you can keep your home phone number for a one-time fee or get a new one for free. Setup is easy. It takes less than 10 minutes. Stop paying too much for home phone service. Visit UMA.com slash Gordon Deal today to get a special discount. That's O-O-M-A. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. I'm Gordon Deal. Coming up this half hour, your feelings on Travis and Taylor. Also, the best plug-in hybrids and the perfect beer lineup for the Super Bowl. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, with the Super Bowl in mind this weekend... Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are adorable, or are they cringy? They're beautiful, or are they repulsive? They're giving you hope, or they're making you feel lonelier than ever. How you feel about them may be a reflection of your current place in life. Analysis from David Oliver, wellness reporter at USA Today. David, some takeaways.
6: So basically, the general gist is that people you know, have all kinds of opinions about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. They're arguably the most famous couple in America at the moment. Whether you care about music, football, or neither, they're just kind of everywhere. And often when we see people in positions of power, it's easy to kind of sort of, I guess, project one's own opinions about life onto these people. So if you are seeing, you know, this happy couple be everywhere and you are single or just got out of a relationship and are feeling bad about your current relationship or something like that. You're probably going to hate this couple. Whereas if you are, you know, in a happy relationship, things are going well for you, you might see them and be like, oh, how sweet. It's that type of thing. We're often projecting our insecurities or our securities onto
1: other people. Mm. And as she predicted how many, uh, how many albums ago, Haters Gonna Hate. I mean, that's what we're seeing <laughs> here, right?
6: absolutely 1989 a couple albums ago
1: for those who think "Eh, it's kind of cool like me uh you know he he seems you're very funny nice she seems it's it's just so generous and genuine i mean what about those of us who are okay with it even if uh, like me you work in the football industry
6: you know it's totally okay you're totally allowed to you know have joy for other people's joy you might be feeling this term called it's called Freudenfreude, or like this, as a source is telling me, a vicarious experience of another's joy. It's like the opposite to Schadenfreude, where you get pleasure from someone else's pain or misfortune, something like that. So it's totally okay to feel that way. Um, and you can definitely embrace it. And then I would also say that though, like, you know, if this couple were to break up or something like that, it doesn't you know then suddenly mean that you were wrong or feeling, you know, it would be okay for you to mourn that relationship too. It's something that you're allowed to connect with these people because they're just, again, reflections of yourself.
1: Yeah. We're speaking with David Oliver, wellness reporter at USA Today. His story is called Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, and finding happiness and hatred all at once. What was the point you made about uh, oscillating between feelings?
6: Um, You know, the point is that, you know, maybe there's a day where you're feeling a bit more like unhappy with your relationship. And you might then suddenly look at them and be like, "Oh, like, you know, this couple again, or you might see a cute interaction between the two and think, Oh, how sweet. Like it's totally okay for your opinions to kind of waver, um, as you move throughout your life because nothing is, is permanent that way.
1: You reference to uh, things like, uh, the, the scarcity or abundance mindset go through that.
6: So basically this means that, you know, a scarcity mindset, if you don't have something and then you see something of that nature, kind of in front of you, you're naturally going to feel really bad. And you're going to feel that lack of something very intensely versus an abundance mindset, maybe you see something um, happy, and you want more of it. So that's sort of where I guess where that comes from. And that's sort of where the trouble is when you don't have something that you fall into this a scarcity mindset that way.
1: Thanks David. David Oliver, wellness reporter at USA Today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Gas electric hybrid cars fill a need for those who want an electric car but don't want to experience range anxiety. Since these vehicles have dual drivetrains, one electric and the other gas, they're more complex than all electric or all gas powered cars. Tech analyst Rob Enderley is here with a list of his favorites. Rob, start with the Polestar 1
0: well, it really is the first, it was the first ground-up new design for a, a hybrid. A lot, a lot of the hybrids are, are variants of gas cars, and, um, and Pulsar 1 wasn't. It was a ground-up uh, redesign. So it, it's, uh, And it's got 77 miles of, of electric power, uh, up to 77 miles of electric power, which means got, you have a, a, a vehicle that has the range of some of the early electrics. Uh, on electric power, plus you still have the full gas capability. Mm. Uh, it's got 600 horsepower combined, but um, 738 pounds of pound feet of torque. So it's a decent 0 to 60, 4.3 seconds. That's compa- uh, that's comparable to a fast hatch. So it's quick. Um, so with the combination of uh, really good looks, it's a, a very attractive automobile. Uh, decent range, and um, and a decent range on electric, and then uh, then um, uh, uh, a, a really nice design. It, it, it to my mind, it, it right now it's the best hybrid in, in the in the market. We do realize hybrids are kind of tweeners. We, we'll have these until electrics take off, or until we switch to hydrogen, which is the new thing. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but then they'll probably be gone. Uh, but the but the but if you're going to do hybrid, Polestar one's your best.
1: Okay. And it's also the cost of like a townhome in uh, kind of the Midwest, right? It, like 150 grand. Yeah. Because
0: recognize with a hybrid, you've got two. You've got basically two. Uh, powertrains. And and to, and to do that right, to have a really good electric powertrain and a really good gas powertrain, it's not going to be cheap. And, and it kind of showcases what you've got to spend if you want something really good. All right. Uh,
1: somewhat, I guess, uh, somewhat more affordable would be the, the Range Rover Sport Autobiography.
0: Yeah. It, it, again, looking at, and, and Range Rover certainly had some issues with regard to reliability, but the... But the uh, but but it but it comes in underneath the pole starts about 30 grand less. Um, I think here's a car you want to buy used, because uh, it loses, loses loses a lot of its value um, once it's no longer new. So it so it drops in price a lot after it's after it's um, after it's new. So if you buy it used, it can be a, it can be a real value. And the and again a decent design of a, a very clean design, a decent um, uh, range when it comes comes to uh, electrical range. And the um, and a uh, zero to sixty time of of a uh, four point seven seconds, fifty one mile range on electricity. And my view is anything over about forty miles, you're golden. It's um, it's uh, below forty miles, then you're probably not going to use the electric as much as you as you might want. Though okay. our hybrid's uh, an older Volvo with only twenty miles of range, and we find we only go through about three tanks of gas a year um, oh, with goodness. it because most of what where we drive is within five miles. Wow.
1: We're speaking with Rob Enderley, founder and principal analyst at the Enderly Group. He's going through his list of the best plug-in hybrids. Um, also in there, the BMW X5 XDrive 50e.
0: Yeah, if you like BMWs, I'm, I'm, I've never been a huge fan, but this, is, this isn't this is a bad-looking truck. Um, $73,000, so dropping down into something that more people can afford. Uh, 4.6 seconds 0 to 60, so comparable to the Range Rover above for a lot less money in terms of, of underlying performance. Not quite as much range on electric, but still over 40 miles. And the and the uh, um, uh, and the end result is you've got something that can be you know serviced in any BMW dealer. It's it's nice looking, mm-hmm. and it's much more uh, much more affordable at $73,000. All
1: right, uh, perhaps too, One of the uh, OGs on this list, the Toyota Prius. This one, the Prime trim.
0: Yeah, the the Toyota Prius Prime. That's a. They've got two Priuses. You got a. You've got a, a non plug-in hybrid still. Well, I'd forgotten that when I actually wrote this. They have a, a version that is a non plug-in hybrid, which I, I I don't see much pointed anymore. And then the Toyota Toyota Prius Prime, which is a plug-in, and and this is probably what you're going to see an awful lot of Uber drivers uh, driving. So the so. Uh, it's a go-to for Uber and Lyft. It's it's relatively reasonable at thirty-two thousand to thirty-nine thousand dollars, so it's easily affordable. A lot of room inside. I I don't find it the most attractive car on the road, but the, <laughs> but the but the but it's got an electric driving range of forty-four miles, so it's over the forty, and so and so it's a true bargain. It's not horrible looking, and I think the the new the new Priuses look a ton better than the old ones do did. And the thing is, is this is the affordable one. If you're really just buying a car for transportation. And for experience in an electric vehicle, but you need that gas for for extra range, this is probably the one you should get. It's very affordable, very reliable. It's a kind of go-to for Uber and Lyft drivers. this, this is a, it it's, it's not going to turn heads. but on the other hand, it, it's it's not an ugly car either. It, it's a this is the practical wrap for a plug-in hybrid.
1: Thanks, Rob. Rob Enderley, founder and principal analyst at the Enderly Group. Coming up next, why 20somethings are going to bed early? For all the ones who get it done, Granger is always there to help. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, 24 7 support, free access to product specialists, and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Plus, they provide real time product availability online and have sourcing specialists who can help you track down hard to find items. And their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call 1 800 Granger. Click granger.com or just stop by. Ranger for the ones who get it done. Thanks for being with us. Forget bar hopping or even dinner out. More young professionals prefer turning in early. Apparently aware of the importance of sleep. Here's Rachel Wolf, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, who's part of the trend. Rachel, what's with your generation?
5: My partner joked that this was just a conspiracy to normalize my own 9 p.m. <laughs> bedtime. Uh, it is not. It is true, but <laughs> it, um, I'm definitely guilty.
1: So, th- but this is like a cool thing to do among uh, young adults your age, for example.
5: Yeah. Um, apparently, I'm on trend. Which is again why my partner was making fun of me about it, uh, because it in over the course of reporting, I found out that my own habit is not only healthy but actually cool.
1: Mm. You live like in a party town, though. How do you do this?
5: I do live in New Orleans, but luckily the Mardi Gras parades are all during the day or early evening, so it's actually conducive. Partying, they've. New Orleans is the original partying during the day, sleeping at night town.
1: Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, there's stuff
5: going on at night, too. I'm just not partaking.
1: Wow. Uh, So to your point, there are businesses who are adjusting here because they're spotting this trend of young adults just going to bed earlier.
5: Exactly. At Joyface in Manhattan, revelers counted down to midnight on New Year's Eve at 8 p.m. Uh, (laughs) So if that doesn't tell you that bars are taking advantage of an opportunity. I don't know what will. Also, apparently, even on college campuses, events are starting earlier. People are recognizing that you don't need to be out until all hours to still have fun.
1: Wow. All right, so is this, from my perspective, perhaps your generation getting a little soft? Or are you just aware that there are great benefits to a good night's sleep?
5: Could be both. I think that we are more exhausted than (laughs) maybe previous generations were when they were our age. And I think that there are a lot of different reasons for that, Um, but it's probably a little bit of both. I think it's a combination of, you know, feeling a bit overwhelmed by the state of things and just recognizing that getting a good night's sleep is a key to having a successful next day. and There's just less stigma in that than there once was.
1: Wow. We're speaking with Rachel Wolf, consumer trends reporter at the wall street journal. She's got a good story called the hottest new bedtime for 20 somethings is 9 PM and she's one of them. So th- th- there was a, I believe a doctor in your story who said you can take this a little too seriously. What was the point there?
5: Yeah. He was saying that people are getting a little bit neurotic about their sleep. So Somewhere between seven and nine hours, a little bit more than that, is good. But I think a point that he was trying to make is sometimes if you obsess about sleep too much, it can be counterproductive and cause you to actually have more trouble falling asleep. Mm. So his advice was, you know, great to see that sleep is being taken more seriously, but everybody could also perhaps stand to relax a little bit.
1: Thanks, Rachel. Rachel Wolf. Consumer Trends Reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Well, we'll finish with this. Here's where you should start and end to create a crowd-pleasing Super Bowl 58 beer lineup. It's from the For the Win blog at USA Today. Number one, the common denominator, light beers. They're the best-selling beers in America for a reason, so you can't go wrong, the blog says, by having available Miller, Coors, Bud Light. Don't overthink this one. It says, grab the kind of beer you'd find at a stadium or atop the tap list at Buffalo Wild Wings. It's fine. <laughs> Number two, the Fancy and Boozy IPA. Sweet Water Gummies with a balance between sweet, juicy flavors and bold floral hops is the call here. Number three, also need a classic German-type beer. The call, Franziskaner Hefeweiss Dunkel. For the win says, this dark lager is damn near perfect. Roasty and smooth and a little bit sweet. To cover the non beer folks, the hard seltzer Toco Chico Spirited. And for non alcoholic beers, Upside Dawn Golden Ale from Athletic Brewing, described as an upgrade from O'Deal's. That'll do it for this hour. I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend.